0: Well, it's good to be with you, good to be with our Castleton friends and family here this morning. So we continue in our series on evangelism, it brought back to memory a couple years ago when I was with 15 other college students in the middle of the city of Chicago and we went out into the city on a Friday night to do what has often been coined as street evangelism. The aim, to spark up conversations with people that would hopefully lead to sharing the gospel. Well, as you can imagine, nervous I stood upon a busy Michigan Avenue, and as I stood there with hundreds of thousands of people walked by, I began by asking the question, do you have a minute? So the first person walks by, and I saw him, and we made eye contact, and I said, sir, do you have a minute? And he said, I'm not buying. <laughs> Thought, this is going well. The second man walked by, we made eye contact. I said, sir, would you happen to have a minute? He looked me straight in the eye and said, you're weird. (laughs) I thought, well, he's right, but he could at least give me a minute to talk. But the third encounter was quite unusual. It was a middle-aged woman who was walking by. We happened to make eye contact, so she looked friendly. So I said, ma'am, do you have a moment to talk? Confused, she looked back at me like she didn't hear what I said, so I, I raised my voice do you have a moment to talk? Confused even more, she began to walk closer to me. I thought, oh, okay, so she just has a hard time hearing. So practically shouting, I said, do you have a minute to talk? And she looked me in the eye and said, gracias, como esta? (laughs) And in that moment, I thought, we're not speaking the same language. (laughs) But perhaps you can relate. Have you ever shared the gospel before and felt like you were speaking a different language? Maybe you've been turned away because you've been thought of as as weird, resisted. And have you ever wondered why it is that when you share the gospel with family and friends and neighbors that you are often met with resistance, awkwardness, and sometimes even rejection? Well, in Luke 18, Jesus has a conversation with a man in which he exposes what I believe to be three barriers that this man and people in general face when confronted with the gospel. These barriers that exist are in every human heart, regardless of race, socioeconomic background, your upbringing, where you live, what job you have, it doesn't matter. When you are confronted with the gospel, You face these three barriers. Well, what are these barriers, you ask? We begin by looking in verse one, pardon, in verse 18 of chapter 18 of the book of Luke. And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the context of this, you may know, is Jesus has just got done previously rebuking the Pharisees as you remember, the disciples have parents flocking to Jesus with their children. And, and the, the disciples are like, get out of here, shoo, get away. And, and Jesus comes and has a remarkable statement. He says, disciples, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you actually have to be like these children you are rejecting. And, and possibly moments later, a man comes up to Jesus, but not just any man. The Bible describes him as a ruler. In other words, this man was a leader in society. He would have been seen as possibly a civic leader. He had done a lot of good in the community. People had known him for his character and good work, so he was thus coined a ruler, a leader. An up-and-coming young man, Matthew 19 tells us, in the context of the synagogue. But most importantly is something that we find in verse 23 of this passage, and in Mark 9, and in Matthew 19. He's rich. Matthew 19 says he was a man of great possessions. The reason this is so important is because in Jewish culture, a man that was rich was seen as being blessed by God. It was believed that the reason he had so many riches is because of his righteousness. In other words, they believed if you live a good life, God will inevitably give you health and wealth. And so as a result, due to this belief, not only was this man thought of to be rich by those who knew him, but he was thought of as a morally upright person, a good man, one, in every respect, you parents would long for your children to be like on the outside. And because he was morally upright, the Bible tells us he was rich. Now, in Mark 9, Mark tells us specifically, gives us a little more detail than here in Luke 18, of how this man came to Jesus. In fact, The Bible says that he ran up to Jesus and knelt down before him. As he begins to interact with Jesus, we see a couple of things. In fact, I think most importantly, we see how this man views Jesus. Look with me. He addresses him as good teacher. Now good was often a word used in ancient Judaism to uh, show some kind of form of reverence. Often it was used in the context of speaking about God or the Torah. good was not a word you just toss around like I had a good sandwich or that was a good drink. This was a word that was wholly dedicated to using in reverent purposes. And so here, this man, this rich young ruler who had heard of Jesus' teaching, maybe from a friend, maybe himself, recognizes that Jesus speaks with an authority that other rabbis do not. So he approaches him and calls him a good teacher, a set-apart teacher. But then notice the question he asks. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He feels as though there is something missing in his life. So essentially he comes up to Jesus and asks, Jesus, what's one more thing I could do so that I can be sure that I'm on my way to heaven? See friends, he views Jesus not as the Son of God, but as a good teacher who will aid him on his path to self-justification. There's a difference. You say, well, why does this matter? Because this is precisely the first barrier unbelievers face when confronted with the gospel, and that is this bad theology. Bad theology. You say bad theology, theology is just for the, the pastors and the scholars and Joe Bartimus. I mean, the theology isn't for all of us. Oh, but my friend, do you not know that theology is simply the study of God? What you think about God when you think about God is your theology, you see. So it doesn't matter what your worldview is, where you live, your job, how old you are, your upbringing, how much money you make, all of us have a view of God. Even you who are here today who say, I want nothing to do with Jesus Christ, even you have a theology. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said this, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he is in his deep heart conceives God to be like. And then he says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. At the end of the day, the most important thing about you is not what gifts you have, your upbringing or the possessions you own. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God, why? Because what you believe about God will determine what you believe about the gospel and what you believe about the gospel has eternal implications on your own soul. If you get God wrong, you get the gospel wrong. And if you get the gospel wrong, you are damned. And the reason why this is such a barrier is because if your view of God is shaped by anything less than the Bible, you will inevitably recreate a gospel made in your own image. Augustine said it well. When he said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe but yourself. Well, you ask, then how can I help my unbelieving friends and family learn more about God? What is it that I can do? By building bridges of grace that support the weight of what? Truth by building bridges of grace that support the weight of truth. And we do this by spending time with people, getting to know them, listening to what excites them, learning about what they love. And as we do this, we pray, God, would you open a door for me to have a conversation about who you are with this person. So here is the question. What will you do this week to do that? Maybe you're thinking, I don't even know where to start. For those of you at North Indy, as Pastor Joe said this morning, we have our local outreach wall right outside of these doors. That I encourage you after the service, go to the wall. There's be some good folks that you can talk to to get some ideas about how you can do that. And then for those of you at Castleton. Talk to Pastor Dale and Pastor Eric and figure out some ways that you could possibly do that this week. Because friends, this is so important because what we believe about God, what people believe about God because our theology has eternal implications. If you just think God is the man upstairs, that man upstairs cannot forgive you of your sin. He cannot. But notice how Jesus responds to this young ruler. Verse 19. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and without hesitation, look at what the young ruler says. Verse 21. And he said, with a little smirk on his face, That's my translation. All these I have kept from my youth. Notice what he is saying. Not only is he currently obeying those things. Now that's a daunting list, isn't it? And he says, not only am I currently obeying these, but that's junior varsity. I've obeyed them since in my youth. If you saw this man in the street and you were to ask him the simple question, do you think of yourself to be a good person, he would unshakably say, yes, yes. And yet, the point of Jesus sharing these commandments is not so that he would say, look at me. The point of him sharing these commandments was to show him how desperately broken and needy he really is. But he misses the point. You say, well, what's so wrong with that? He, after all, is a pure-hearted, honest, hard-working, religious man that honors his parents. Why is this such a big deal? He was being honest. Hmm. Years ago, a chemist from Procter & Gamble developed a product that the company believed would revolutionize the cleaning world. The product was kind of found out by accident by a chemist when he was experimenting with certain things. He, conducting a couple experiments, found that he made this formula that could literally take bad odor out of anything. Just put this liquid on anything that smelt bad and it would be gone. As the executives of Procter & Gamble heard this, they had money signs spitting in their eyes and thought, how can we get this out into stores fast enough? So they began selling Febreze in select cities to see how it would go, but there was one problem. Nobody bought it. So they hired some fancy marketing director who came in with the marketing team and said, sir, I want you to go and figure out how we can sell this product. The product was named Febreze. So this marketing manager took his team, thought up of a brilliant idea. What we'll do is we'll take several hundred bottles of Febreze and send it to select people and select households, and after a month of use, we'll go visit them and ask, what did you think? So they did this. They sent out bottles of Febreze all over the United States, and one went to an elderly woman in Phoenix, Arizona. So when the month passed, they traveled to Phoenix, Arizona. The team arrived at her house, walked inside, and they quickly smelt the stench of cats. The reason why is because this woman not only had one cat. No, she did not have two cats. No, not even three cats. She had nine. Now, you'll want to write this down. I don't have a chapter and verse for it, but I can... Probably give a compelling argument in the next 60 seconds of why cats are a result of sin. (laughs) And I know this because I have two of them. And they are for sale and they're free. (laughs) So as the marketers walked inside, the team asked the woman an obvious question. Have you used Febreze? The woman looked at them and said, no. They asked, well, why not? And then one of the marketers looked down on the ground and knew the reason why. There, laid on the ground, a bottle of Febreze, and as he picked it up, he realized she hadn't used even one drop. So the man asked the woman, why is it that you're not using Febreze? And then she turned to the team and said, I don't see my need for it. And on that day, Procter & Gamble learned an important lesson. If the buyer does not see their need for a product, no matter how good it is, they will not buy it. And this is the second barrier the rich young ruler faced and your unbelieving friends and family. And yes, you even in yourself in your natural state face when you're confronted with the gospel. And that is this, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. The ruler's response to Jesus' question, that I've kept all these from my youth, revealed the self-righteousness that was residing within the depths of his heart. Self-righteousness is the belief that I am not a ruined, broken sinner in need of God's grace. And as a result when I am confronted with the gospel that says I am a ruined, broken sinner in need of God's grace, I simply reply in my heart, I don't see my need for it. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and at the end of you sharing the gospel, they look you in the eye and say, not right now, but maybe later in life. What are they really saying? I don't see my need for it, and the reason why they say I don't see my need for it is because they're self-righteous. They don't see themselves, as the Bible describes them, as a sinner ruined and in need of God's grace. That is the reason why. And the scary thing is, this is not something that exists outside of the church. Can I tell you, the greatest disease sweeping across the church today in the West is self-righteousness. It's even here this morning. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? That all of us have a wicked, rich, young ruler residing with all of our hearts. We say, well, how do I know if if I'm self-righteous? Here are a couple warning signs. When I tell stories, I'm always the hero making all the right decisions at just the right time, because I want people to know how wise and discerning and how great I am. So as a result, I always come on at the top. Do you do that? I always defend myself when someone points out a weakness or a wrong I've done, because after all, I know me better than they do. self righteous I make myself feel good about what God says is bad. I'm skilled in recasting the wrong I did in my mind in such a way that it doesn't look that bad, you see. Or how about this? I don't celebrate the grace at work in others because I'm too busy thinking about how I could have done it better than they did self-righteous. Furthermore, the reason some of us become so dull in our worship is because of our self-righteousness. Paul Tripp put it best when he said, you'll never celebrate grace as much as you should when you think you're more righteous than you actually are. Never." It is impossible, oh, impossible to sing, oh, praise the one who paid my debt if you think your debt is small. And the reason so many people never believe the gospel is due to the fact that they, like the rich young ruler, believe they just don't need it. So, verse 22 When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus is calling this man to do what all people, you and I alike, who desire to follow Jesus must do, and that is trust in him alone. Him alone. Trusting in Jesus cannot be a half-foot-in, half-foot-out posture. You're either all in or you're all out. And yet, here, Jesus is reminded, I'm sure, of the words that he had previously spoken in Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters. You can't. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Luke 16. Jesus essentially says, oh, so you want to inherit eternal life? Then here's all you have to do. Give up that which is most precious to you and place your trust wholly in me. Give it all away. And what will be the result? You will have treasure in heaven. What a deal. Scholar James Edwards puts it this way, Jesus is telling the rich young ruler, sell everything that you have, and in return, I will give you that which is most precious, namely, myself. Jesus, for all that he has. And then we come to the most, in my opinion, the saddest verse in all the Bible. His response Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, Mm. for he was extremely rich. This verse, this man, when being confronted with the call to abandon all that he had to follow Jesus, he refused. He rejected the Son of God the very one who made all things, who sustains all things, when he says, I'll give you myself. In other words, saying, I'm going to give you everything. The man says, no, I want to have my little money. He loved his money more than his maker. He wanted to keep drinking from a broken cistern instead of finally having that which, which his heart longed for, namely living water. And he refused it. The missionary Amy Carmichael once experienced something similar to this. She was sitting with a Hindu queen inside of her palace and as the conversation between the two started, it turned quickly to this woman asking an interesting question. What is necessary for my salvation? A Hindu queen. Amy Carmichael pulled out of her Bible, pulled out her Bible, turned to Luke 18 and began to read. And she read this line, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. She writes of her experience by saying, as I read her verse after verse of Luke 18, her face settled sorrowfully. At the end of my reading, she looked with great sorrow on her face and said, so far must I follow Jesus, so far? And then she said, I cannot follow him that far. Mm. And in the same way, the rich man, after hearing what it would cost to follow Jesus, said in his heart, I can't follow you that far, Lord. I can't follow you that far. And in doing so, Jesus reveals yet another barrier people face when they are confronted with the gospel, and that is false gods. False gods. This is the very barrier that kept the rich young ruler from trusting in Jesus, and it is the same barrier that drives other people, and maybe even you this morning, from trusting solely in Jesus. What is a false god, you asked? Tim Keller defines it well. He says, a false god is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And there are many ways to describe this, the kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best word to use is worship, end quote. The question to ask this morning is not, do I worship? The question to ask this morning is, what am I worshiping? Because by definition, we're all worshipers. For some, you come to worship the living God. For some of you, it's a host of other things. You say, well, how do I know what I'm worshiping? How do I I discern that? By filling in the blank to this statement. My life only has meaning if blank. And whatever goes in that blank Is what you worship. My life only has meaning if blank. That is what you worship. For the rich young ruler, his answer was, my life only has meaning if I have riches. For others, it might be, my life only has meaning if I'm loved and respected by fill in the blank. For some of us, life only has meaning if we are highly productive and get a lot done. For others, life only has meaning if you have a particular kind of look or body image. On and on and on we can go. John Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory, <laughs> it makes idols out of everything. We love to worship the created instead of the creator. Romans 1. And as a result, when unbelievers are confronted with the gospel, they either see it as an add-on, something I can add to my resume so I look really good that people think I'm a Christian, or they just neglect it. I don't need it. And so they never obtain what their thirsty hearts long for. Well... Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that this man had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it hard for wealthy people to enter the kingdom of God? I want to argue this is not just because money in and of itself is evil. The fact is money brings along challenges that other things do not. When you have money, you have status, you have comfort, you have pleasure, you have fame, and a whole host of other things that you do not have if the money disappears. And because of that, people that have a lot of money begin to think, well, because I have all this money and all this comfort and all this pleasure and all this fame and all this success and all this joy, why do I need Jesus? How difficult it is, Jesus says. But then he ups the ante. Verse 26, 25 rather. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> Jesus is speaking in hyperbolic language. If I were to take a child and had him stand right here and said, okay son, um, here is this large camel, you can't ride it, and here is this little needle. Now what I want you to do is I'm gonna give you $1 if you can shove this large camel through the eye of this little needle. I doubt the kid would go to the camel, try to pick up the camel and squeeze it through the eye of a needle, why? Because immediately he knows it's a sham. It's impossible, even if you tried, and that's the point. That's the point Jesus is making. It is impossible for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle as it is for a rich man who is believed to have favor with God in his life because of all his riches and all of his good deeds to get to heaven. See, the point Jesus is making is plain, and it is this. It is impossible for you to be wealthy enough, for you to be moral enough, and obedient enough to enter the kingdom of God on your own. Impossible. You can't do it. Jonathan Edwards agreed when he wrote, to take on yourself to work out redemption, in other words, to enter the kingdom of God or to make yourself a Christian, is a greater thing than if you had taken it upon yourself to create a world. You know what he's saying? It would be easier for you to create an entire universe than for you to try to get into the kingdom of heaven. It would be easier. Because it is impossible to make yourself a Christian apart from Jesus. And of course, Jesus now is saying all of these things to his disciples as they hear it, as they've been listening to all of these things, as the rich young ruler has walked off sad. The disciples finally speak up. wonder what they're thinking. Verse 26, those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Who can be saved? Here is this man standing before the disciples who, in every respect, is their superior. He is wealthy, moral, obviously blessed by God, and yet he leaves this conversation with Jesus sad because Jesus has called him to abandon literally everything to follow him. And their response to this interaction is simply this then who can be saved? You know what they're asking? If this guy can't get in, who can? If we are honest, it is the same question we must ask when we think about the barriers of bad theology, self-righteousness, and false gods that our lost family members, friends, coworkers, and maybe even you face today. Who can be saved? And on top of all of that, the news is worse. The Bible says that our natural condition is blinded such that we are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. You're blind, but it gets worse. Not only are we blind, but Ephesians 2 says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Your unbelieving spouse that you plead for, that you long to come to know Jesus, your child that you, you shed tears over because they don't know Jesus, those friends that you have that your heart just breaks for because they don't know Jesus, are blind. Self-righteous, idol-worshiping sinners that are dead in their trespasses and cannot work themselves out of it. And this leads us to ask the question, then what hope do we have? Why do we keep praying? Why do we keep sharing the gospel with these people? If this is their condition, if we believe the Bible and this is their condition, what hope do we have? Hmm. Well, years ago, I came across a Shakespearean play, Macbeth, some of you might know. It was a spin-off of the Macbeth play by a playwright that I know. And in the middle of the play is a young woman. The young woman lives a peaceful life in serenity in a small village. Beautiful young woman with lots of friends, all that her heart would desire. Until one night, that all changes. The woman wakes up in the middle of the night to look at her hands to only find them stained with blood. Immediately, she jumps out of bed, runs to the faucet, and tries to wash off the stain. Scrubbing her hands, using whatever she can to try to get the stain off to no avail. The stain cannot wash off. So she immediately went to a nearby doctor and was met with the bad news. There was nothing he could do for her. This was a permanent stain. As a result, this woman lived in shame and guilt. The idea of somebody seeing the true her with blood-stained hands, she knew nobody would love her, nobody would want her, no one would desire her. In fact, she'd be rejected. So, She would wear gloves to conceal the stain. She would not spend time with people in fear that they would learn of her stain. And she lived a life in hiding in the darkness because she had blood-stained hands. But then one day, as she was walking out in the middle of the park, in the middle of her village, she encountered a man who came up to her and said, "'I know about your stain.'" Immediately shocked and embarrassed, she said, What are you talking about? I don't have a stain. And he looked her in the eye and said, Remove your gloves. The woman, in an act of courage and bravery, removed her gloves, revealing her blood-stained hands. The man looked her in the eye and said, Loved one, I can heal your stain. She looked at him and said, no, you cannot. I've tried everything. I've tried to hide it. I've tried to wash it myself. The doctors can't do anything about it. This stain is permanent. And he looked her in the eye again and said, loved one, give me your stain. The man reached out his hands. The woman put her hands in this man's hands. And as he held them, in a moment, she pulled her hands back and they were clean. In amazement, she stood and looked at the man and said, how did you do that? And then she saw how the man revealed his hand hand stained by blood. And he said, I healed your stain by taking your stain upon myself. Mm. Our hope is not that we can work hard enough so that the stain can be removed. Our hope is not that we can hide our stain from God, the things that you have done, that no one knows about, but there's something in your conscience that says this is wrong. Our hope is not that we are persuasive enough, coercive enough, skillful enough to convince our spouse, our children, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers to trust in Jesus and to have their stain cleaned. Friends, our hope Our good news has a name, and his name is Jesus. What is our only hope? Jesus and him crucified. That is our hope. You say, well, what exactly does all of this mean? Look at verse 27. Jesus responds to disciples who are thinking, if this guy can't get in, who can? And Jesus responds with possibly the most Majestic, beautiful verse in all the Gospel of Luke, and he says this, what is impossible with man is possible with God. You know what he's saying? It is impossible for you to get rid of your sin. You can't do it. You can't work hard enough. You can't hide it enough. You can't conceal it enough. You can't cover it up enough. But, oh, what is impossible with you is possible with me. You see, say well how does Jesus, God, make this possible? How does he take what is impossible and make it possible? Second Corinthians 521, he took our sin upon himself. He who knew no sin became what? Sin, the one with clean hands became the one with the stain. Why? so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <laughs> you say, well, why does that matter? Two implications. Number one, because the gospel is true, there's no such thing as somebody being too far gone. Don't ever let the devil lie to you. There is no such thing as too far gone. If you are a Christian this morning, you know what your testimony is summarized into one sentence? Verse 27. Verse 27. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Do you understand that at one point in your life, if you know Jesus, you were too far gone? You were dead in your sin. You were in the grave. You were blind, you're self-righteous, you loved idols, you worshiped things, you loved things that you saw more than the creator, more than the maker, but what did God do? How did he make what is impossible possible? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still yet sinners, while you were still worshiping things, while you were still believing that you're good enough to make your way to heaven, while you were still in the grave, how did he show his love for us? Christ died. For us. That is the gospel. So when you go to share the gospel with a hard-hearted son or daughter or a resistant spouse or a skeptical neighbor, look at your own life and remember, if God can save me, he can save anyone. There is no barrier strong enough that can withstand the grace of God. None. Secondly, This good news will never cease to be good news. There's a lot of news that I read, and often I forget about it in a matter of minutes. But the gospel will not be forgotten for all eternity. It will never cease to be good news. Do you realize what we will be doing in heaven is celebrating the gospel? Ephesians 2, verse 6 to 7, God raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that, listen to this, in the coming ages, in the new heavens, in the new earth, forever and ever and ever, what's going to be happening? He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Do you know what this means? It means you will be a trophy of God's grace in heaven. There will not be one redeemed sinner in heaven who says, look at me, I knew I'd make it here. Instead, the resounding theme of heaven will be this, worthy, worthy is the lamb who was slain. That will be the resounding theme in heaven. Why? Because the only reason I'm here is because of him. That's it. John Newton, the man who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, is known for saying on his deathbed, though my memory fails me, I remember two things well, that I am a great sinner, and he is a great Savior. Amen? And that will be our testimony forevermore. Let's pray. Well, Father, this is truly good news. And it's only good news because you've made it good news. And I know there's some people here today that come with heavy hearts because they have a spouse or a child or a loved one or a friend or a family member and they've believed the lie, they're too far gone. Would you in this moment, as we sing this song, remember that there will come a day in heaven where we will cast all of our crowns at Jesus' feet and say, all of my wealth is in the cross. We were once far gone, but you've brought us near in Jesus Christ. And for that, we can never sing loud enough your praises. We ask and plead and pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.